0: Uh, my name is Josh. You know, I've been here a number of times, uh, and it's just always good to be back. Um, and you know, I love—I just love what the Lord is doing here. And um, this—this—I uh, said this in first service, but the—the—it's you know, also when I came here last. I think it was the last time I came here. Um, you guys had just started opening up. Like PEI wasn't open; we were still locked down, we didn't have any church services, anything like that, and you guys, yours was the first service I remember stepping into after we'd been without worship services together for the better part of six months to a year, something like that, right, and so I've, I've just got this very fond memory of glad tidings, because I remember sitting right here, standing right here during worship and going, oh, I've missed this, oh, I've so missed this, and, you know it's one thing to we're working behind the scenes you know as the pastoral staff and you're showing up and you know i was uh, preaching at our church in pei but it's one thing to have five people in the building recording something or live streaming something and a whole other thing to be here together worshiping offering praise to the father that's a much different dynamic it's one thing you know to be look at the little number on facebook and say oh you know there's 70 of us here <laughs> and to be together one heart one mind one spirit offering ourselves up to him, you know, it's, it's just such a beautiful thing. And now you guys are at two services, like, I, you know, here, here's one thing I'll tell you. When people, when people go, uh, you know, I travel all over the place, and you know, less so, of course, in the last few years, but, you know, I've been to India, I've been to Hong Kong, Singapore, all over the States, all over Canada, I tell people about you guys. I tell people about you guys because people go, oh man, the church has had a really rough time during COVID. And I said, well, I I know some churches that haven't. I know some churches that have thrived. And I point to you guys. You may not know that, but your fame goes out. (laughs) I say, there's this church in Moncton. Like, actually, COVID didn't really disrupt them all that much. They really thrived in the midst of it. And so to come back here, and now I'm like, two services, people are gathering, worship is happening, young adults are passionate. Though young adults, by the way, give the first and the second service a run for their money, so well, some holy jealousy you guys need to have there. <laughs> <laughs> and this is great. Like, second service is wonderful. You know why? Because I, I don't have an 11 o'clock ending time. You know, you could just keep, we could just keep going. <laughs> That's how you fill big shoes, right? You just speak longer. (laughs) Um, My wife and I run a ministry called Wind Ministries where our our real heart intent is uh, to help you understand what it means to experience the heart of God. Like, that's so mysterious, right? Like, like there's this word that uh, history uses when it comes to describing the nature of God, and the, the word is ineffable. That's a cool word, right? Ineffable. Do you know what that means, Spencer? Ineffable? No. Oh, I shouldn't tell people Spencer's here. He's on vacation right now. So. <laughs> ineffable means unexplainable. So when we talk about encountering the heart of God or experiencing the love of God, it really is ineffable. How do you talk about encountering the heart of God? You say, it, you know, it, We'll say things like, it really blasted me. (laughs) Or one of my friends, he says, man, I got schmoed in that service. (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) Not sure what schmoed means, but it works. Go, yeah, I think I felt that before. Right, well, like we, we have to almost invent terms to try and talk about the way that God encounters us, because it is, it's a mystery. It really is. So how do we talk about this? Well, Scripture gives us language, of course, but this God is mysterious. The only way God can be known, it says this, 1 Corinthians 2 says, the only one that can explain God is himself. That's what 1 Corinthians 2 says. It says he gave his spirit to us to reveal himself to us because we couldn't understand him by ourselves. We needed him to reveal himself. And then ultimately, how did he reveal himself? He revealed himself, not in this book, because this is my book, in this book. My story's in this book, too. All of our stories are in this book. He came and said, look, you guys don't have any hope of knowing me, so I'm going to come and look like you so you can see me. So it is a mystery, the journey of intimacy, the journey of knowing him, the journey of grasping after him. It is a mystery. It's wild and chaotic. It can be scary at times. Like, you have you ever taken five minutes and looked at your heart and gone, oh man? <laughs> like it's a journey. So our heart, our heart, our, our goal, our our desire is to help you along the way and just maybe give you some language or giving you some resources that that you might know his great love for you. And you know, think you think about this. Like this book here. The Holy Bible. This book, if you just—if you were to just simplify, you know, this is a complicated book. How many have ever read it and gone, huh? Like you read Ezekiel and you go, that guy was, <laughs> that guy was pretty whack. <laughs> you read some of the things that have happened in there. You read it and you go, what are they talking about? Even actually, even Peter, when he's writing, he talks about Paul and he's going, that guy Paul has some strange ideas. I don't quite understand peter even says that about paul in his letters so but this bible if you were to simplify it this book if you were to simplify it you could say this about it it is a collection of stories that show us how god has come and met mankind and at its simplest essence is what it is again it's more mysterious than that it's more powerful than that but, but just for you to understand, what we have here is a blueprint of the God who longs to be with us. So much so that he names himself Emmanuel, meaning the God who abides with us. See, so here's, here's the thing. I'll say this might be controversial. We've made this the revelation of the sinfulness of man when this is the revelation of the goodness of God. So here's the thing. You don't need the Bible to tell you that you're sinful. You just need to look at yourself. You just look at human history and you'll see it, right? Like the human endeavor has not changed. We may be in a more peaceful world, but we are not in a more holy world. (laughs) This is the revelation of the Father's heart. And it says his tenderness is renewed towards you every single morning. So, with all that said, why do we still live the way that we do? You know, something that Kristen said that really struck me right at the end of um, that worship was, if we just knew how worthy you were, we'd all be on our faces. <laughs> so we got some stuff, we got some business to do, because we got stuff that gets in the way. Man, I like, there's no pressure to end. I like this. I have my, my seven-year-old son has a baseball game I've got to get back to, so I do have some pressure to get back to P.I., but that's not until five. <laughs> so, just letting you know, you know. <laughs> um, I, we've got a book table out in the, in the lobby there, in the foyer. Uh, with a couple of books and resources for you. One of the books is this book called Transformation. We just put this book out. It's been out for about a month, month and a half. And we've, I just wrote this. Well, I didn't just write it. You know, it takes a while to put these things out. If you've ever done a book, it's not an easy endeavor. Um, it's called Transformation, Catching a Glimpse of the Beauty of God. Because I'm, I'm absolutely convinced, like, transformation doesn't happen because you catch a glimpse of doctrine. You know, that's all good, right? I'm not saying that's not good. Transformation doesn't happen because a church building looks pretty. Or transformation doesn't happen because you sing a nice, lovely-sounding verse in a song. Transformation happens because you catch a glimpse of something that's not you. Something so radically different, so high above who you could possibly be, that you go, I want that. You know, any... any Speaking to the men here, any man that's married, you remember what it was like when you saw your wife for the first time and went, oh, I want that. Everything changed. You know, it's a small small example when it comes to the ineffable qualities of the mystery of the God of the universe. But transformation happens because we catch a glimpse of him and that it's not like we can say well this is what he looks like you think about the biblical authors right when isaiah says i saw the lord high and lifted up the train of his robe filled the temple and he goes woe is me i'm undone i'm a man of unclean lips and he finds the mission and validation for his life here's a people that i need to go and tell them about this great god isaiah doesn't tell you what he looks like he tells you what it did to him transformation happens because God comes to you. So that's, that's this book. We're gonna talk about some of that stuff this morning. That's this book, it's available out there after the service for 15 bucks. And I've got these devotionals as well, these seven-day devotionals based on the lives of early fathers in the church. You know, one of the things I've found in studying church history is that, you know, we have like great men and great women that serve within our local bodies that we look to for examples. Like that's been happening for 2,000 years. And there's great men and women of God throughout history that offer us insight and examples of who we can become and what we can do. What God longs to do through us and with us. And you, gotta, you see, you got to be really careful because I've got my friend right down here who's saying yes to everything I say. So this means I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> I like you. <laughs> So we've got these out there. Um, these, these are uh, devotionals based on the lives of the desert fathers and mothers, which was the original or the early monastic movement in Christian history. Men and women that said, this society, this culture is so decadent, so depraved, that we can't fa- We're It's so distracting to worship God here. We need to leave and go somewhere else. How many of you ever felt that? So they left. That's why they're called the Desert Fathers and the Desert Mothers, because they went, where are nobody else in the desert? Let's go there, because there we can truly worship God. So they were drawn by passion. They gathered in communities, and they actually, what what ends up happening, because, you know, the first objection to that is, well, they're supposed to be in the world, like loving people. So they had the radical impact. Actually, who, who here is a history nerd? Like, some of you guys here, like, I think I have even less than right here, my young man right here, good, okay. He's a history nerd, so I'm I'm talking to you. (laughs) These men and women formed and shaped Christian culture, and they went back into society and radically impacted society. Emperors and kings sought their wisdom and guidance, asked them for a word from the Lord. Because their renown went out from them because of the wisdom they carried, like only God could take people out of society and put them in the desert and then use the desert dwellers to influence society. Like only God, right? Like how does God use someone who says, "I don't want to be known"? There's one story um, uh, of a uh, uh, a desert father. I'm, oh, his name is right there. Oh, Longinus. It's weird names these guys had, right? Longinus is known as a man who if he prayed for you, he would you he would be healed He had a reputation right? So Longinus has this this woman who has breast cancer hears about Longinus and says I'm gonna go find him. This is about the fourth century, right? So we're talking 16 1700 years ago. I'm gonna go find Longinus and I'm gonna ask him to pray for me And so she's looking around where he would be because you know, she kind of hears about the region where he'd be And she asks a couple of people that are locals to the area and says, where can you find Longinus? I want to go and have this great man of God pray for me. And so she's looking around. They say, well, he's over in this area usually. So she goes to look. And as she's wandering around, she comes across a man in a tree. And she calls out and asks, hey, do you know where Father Longinus is? And he says, what do you want to have to do with that imposter? That guy's no good. And she says, well, I have breast cancer. I want him to pray for me and he says, turn your heart to God, and he will heal you. You don't need Longinus. And she goes, oh. So she turns, she worships the Father, and she's healed instantly. She walks away praising God. She comes across the locals, and they say, did you ever find Longinus? And she said, no, I didn't actually, but I'm healed. And they said, well, what happened? And she she said, well, found this guy in this tree. He said, I don't need to find Longinus. God will just heal me. And I said, well, what did he look like? And she describes the guy, and they say, well, that was Longinus. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? Like, in our present, in our modern age, what happens? Well, let's make a Facebook profile in a ministry. we got a great story. we got a healing gift. Let's publish that and let everybody know how great my healing gift is. Right? we Fallen so far from that. He didn't want recognition. All he wanted was to turn someone's heart to Jesus. I love that. We've lost that. So if you want to read more about those guys, there's some devotionals out there that give you some insight into their lives. Who's, a, who's like a, I want to give these things away. So who's a, who's a prophetic person here? Here, right here, you're a prophetic person. Okay, come here. Okay, you take them. Ask the Lord who to give them to. Okay. Okay, get a, ask So you don't get them. You get to ask the Lord who to give them to. Yes. You're the prophetic person. So go, okay, God, who should I give it? Who does he highlight? That was a surprise, wasn't it? That was a trick. It was a trick. <laughs> so you just look. Okay. Nobody look at her, okay? You just look and you go, who's God highlighting? Don't look. Everybody look away. It's too embarrassing to look. Okay. Here here's the thing, okay? Like this is it's it's nice lovely stories, beautiful stories, right? Transformation is possible. God longs to encounter you. But here's the thing, in our day and age what we've done, we have lost sight of the beauty of Christ. We are so distracted and inundated with noise that we've lost sight of gazing at his beauty. It's so easy. Like, I can, you realize, I've got, I've got on my phone, who has a Kindle, the Kindle app? Amazon Kindle, you know? There's got to be more of you than that that have a Kindle app. I have to call Amazon. I have on my Kindle app a, a book collection I bought for $1.99 that's called the Nicene Father's Church Collection. Okay, it says it's 95 million lines of text, because it's, you're talking like guys that immediately followed Christ and went to about the 5th century, and it's... A Compilation a large extensive compilation of their writings. I paid a dollar ninety-nine for it And it's searchable and indexed like I don't have to read it all I can just look up the topic that I want That's pretty crazy, right? That we have that much information at our fingertips and like it's like you can open up your phone and you go I'm gonna read this great stuff. But first I'm gonna watch all the YouTube videos First, I've got to check my Instagram feed. Actually, you know what? Maybe I'll do a reel about me reading these. Won't actually read them, but I'll tell people that I want to. It's just crazy what, how distracted we are when, when the beauty of Christ is right before us and we're so willing, just the human heart is so willing to turn away from it. sorry. One of, the, one of the early fathers of, in Christianity was a man um, named Polycarp. Polycarp was a direct descendant in the sense of discipleship from John the Beloved, the Apostle John. Uh, John, John the Apostle was the oldest living Apostle. He passed away, the, the history says he passed away in his 90s. And the last sermon he's recorded as having preached, he couldn't, he was too weak to even come up to preach the sermon in front of anybody so they carried him up and his 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 message was this brethren love one another that was it and everybody got schmoed <laughs> so polycarp's a disciple of john polycarp when he was 86 years old the 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 christians were being persecuted which happened on and off throughout the first 500 years of christian history 400 years so the christians are in the time of intense persecution polycarp's 86 he's a very well known bishop and so the roman people are looking for him to put him to death because the statement caesar or the statement jesus is lord was a direct confrontation with the roman empire because caesar was lord that was how caesar was the essentially god to the empire So for them to say Jesus is Lord is for them to say Caesar is not Lord. So this is a controversial statement, and it's a statement inviting death and martyrdom. So Polycarp, being a well-known representation of the church, they thought, well, let's kill Polycarp, so that way, when we kill him, people are going to be discouraged from this Christianity thing anymore. So they find Polycarp. Polycarp actually has a dream on the eve of them capturing him about how he's going to be killed. So he's, he knows that he's about to die. He's 86 years old. He's taken before um, the, the, the Roman gathering. The proconsul is what the guy's name who was administering judgment against him. And they were saying, um, take the oath, revile Christ, say Caesar is Lord. This is what they were saying to Polycarp. And they, went, and they were torturing him. And a threat that they were going to burn him at the stake. And they said, over and over and over again, revile Christ, revile Christ, renounce Christ, renounce Christ, say Caesar is Lord and Jesus is not, we'll let you go. Polycarp says this, after being tortured, being humiliated at the threat of death, and he says, I have served him 86 years, and in no way has he done me wrong, so how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? That's, that's, see, here's, here, this isn't because Polycarp had been taught all the right ways to think. That's not because he'd been raised in church. That's not because he culturally understood who Jesus was. That's not because he showed up and stacked some chairs. You know, like the, the three-pronged model for church growth. Read your Bible, attend church, and stack chairs. That's how you're going to grow in your spiritual life. That's not, that's, not, that's not what led Polycarp to that moment. What led him to that moment was depth of encounter with the love of God, the nature of the Father, the essence of who he is. He came to him and transformed him. How can I not love him? He's been so good to me. Pope Pius II we're getting all Catholic on you now, in the 15th century. He passed away in 1465, and Pius had recognized that the, this is on the eve of the Reformation, by the way. The Reformation happened in the early 1500s with Martin Luther, right? You guys know the nailing the 95 theses on the wall, right? On the church door. The Reformation led us to, like your church wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the Reformation. So this is about 50 years before the Reformation happens. Pius recognizes that the church has lost its voice in society. And Pius is going, what happened? We used to be such a catalyst for transformation, but nobody listens to us anymore. So he commissions a council a couple years before he passes away and says, hey guys, I need you to investigate why we've lost so much credibility. I'm familiar? Why, why does anybody listen to us anymore? Why does everybody think that what we're saying is bogus? So the council comes back to Pius and says, Well, this is what our findings are. And he says, This we summoned a congress, and what was the result? We sent delegates to provinces and they were mocked mocked and derided. We imposed tithes on the clergy they appealed to a future council, setting a harmful example. We ordered the preachings of indulgences and people claimed it was a trap to extort money invented by a greedy leadership. Whatever we do, people interpret it in the worst sense. We are in the same situation as bankers who have lost their credit. No one trusts us. The priesthood is despised, The name of the clergy is infamous. People say that we live a life of pleasure and that we amass money, that we serve ambition, that we ride on fat mules and noble horses, that we use cloaks with trailing fringes, that we go through the city with puffed-out cheeks under our red hats, clothed in billowing cowls, that we raise dogs for hunting, that we spend much on performers and parasites and nothing on the defense of the faith. They are not entirely wrong. Much of our leadership does just that. And to be honest, the luxury and the splendor of our church is excessive. Therefore, people hate us and do not listen to us even when we speak the truth. He goes on and he says, what do you think we should do in this difficult situation? Should we not seek a way to recover the credibility that we've lost? Of course, you ask, what way shall we take? Certainly not a way that's been used in our time. We can't keep doing it the same way, guys. We must tread a path that has not been used for a long time. We should seek and use those means by which our ancestors gained this great empire of the church for us. How did they gain a voice into the culture? Abstinence, chastity, innocence, zeal for the faith, religious fervor, contempt of death, and eager acceptance of martyrdom put the Roman church over the whole world. A church that first con- was first consecrated with the glorious martyrdom of Peter and Paul, then followed a long series of leaders who, one after another, were dragged before the tribunals of the Gentiles and accused the pagan gods as false. What you're serving isn't real. And loudly proclaimed Christ as the true and only God. They died after atrocious torture, and thus they tended the new plant of the church. Their followers believed that their teachers told the truth since they confirmed their teaching with their death And could not be made to deny them by torture As true and proven shepherds they gave their lives for the sheep imitating jesus Their teacher and lord the eternal and good shepherd who was killed for his sheep on the on the cross and thereby reconciled the human race with the pious father So what Pius recognized was that what set the world on fire was men and women who looked to Jesus and became like him and were willing to die because of who he is. Unfortunately, his words fell on deaf ears and nothing changed. Fifty years later, you get the Reformation. Reformation. My concern is today, church, that we're in a similar place. That we go through the motions, that we practice religion, that we play church, that we come on Sunday, but our lives aren't transformed throughout the week, that we don't look at Jesus, that we don't look anything like him, and that people look at us and they say, Why would I want to be like that? We're accused of being hypocrites, we're accused of not caring. We're accused of being unloving and judgmental. And I'm not saying all those accusations are right, but it ought to give us a question why don't they see the love of Jesus in us? You know, when you, when you lose a voice into the culture, you don't get it back by demanding it back, you get it back by giving your life. I wanna look at for a few minutes here. I know we're... Everybody, lock the doors. I'll go through this quick because I, I I want I I don't want to just leave you going, oh. But there is hope. There's always hope. There has to be hope. Look, the the church has been through difficult times before. There's always hope. Because Jesus never went anywhere. I want to look at for a few minutes. Let's just turn with me in your Bibles. Or open your app. Scroll with me in your Bibles, I guess. Oh, hey, that's true. They're back to like scrolls, right? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus opened the scroll of Isaiah sixty one, you know, in ten years people are gonna read that and go, Oh, you had, had a smartphone, he scrolled to Isaiah sixty <laughs> one. Matthew sixteen verse uh, verse sorry verse thirteen. Uh, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who do people say that the Son of Man is?" And they said, "Some said John the Baptist; others say Elijah; others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets." And he said to them, "But who do you say that I am?" We we'll pause right there for just a second. Jesus had a reputation. Saying, like, "What are people saying about me?" People are trying to wrestle with who is this guy. Is he John the Baptist? You know, which would be a kind of a early form of reincarnation. Is he Elijah? Same thing, early form of reincarnation. They got some strange beliefs, right? This is the pagan culture. This is partly the Jewish culture, too. They've been influenced by the pagan culture. So who is this guy? Who is he? Maybe he's one of the prophets. Come back. So they're talking about Jesus and wrestling with who he could possibly be because he's an enigmatic figure that people are fascinated with. Who do people say that I am? What's, you know, what, what are they talking about when they get their coffee in McDonald's? I was told in PEI when I moved there that if you want to know what the town gossip is, you go to McDonald's and just sit down and listen to what people are saying. <sighs> I have not done it yet, nor do I plan on it. <laughs> but Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? I love that question. Who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, <clears throat> you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, jonah uh, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. See, Peter, <sighs> for Peter to come to grips Jesus has now at this point basically bucked every trend about what it would mean to be the Messiah. For the hundreds of years before Jesus and hundreds of years after Jesus, there were many men that called themselves the Jewish Messiah. They all fulfilled one particular stereotype. That was to be a warrior king who raised an army up and who tried to overthrow the government. Actually, at, at the um, uh, Barabbas at the end of the Gospel account where Barabbas is the man that's let go, and said that he's responsible for sedition and all this kind of stuff. Barabbas was probably a messianic figure in the historical account. He was probably trying to overthrow the Roman government. It says he was responsible for killing a bunch of people, and uh, so history says that he may have been one of those figures. But there was a it was a lot of figures. Even even if you look in if you have um, uh, uh, like a an older like a Catholic Bible that has First and Second Maccabees in there which are historical books about the Jewish history from about 500 uh, BC to uh, the time of Jesus. It talks about Judas Maccabees, and Judas Maccabees was one of the messianic figures in Jewish history. They would raise up an army and overthrow the occupying enemy enemy force, and the whole idea was to reinstitute the Davidic line or the Davidic temple or the Davidic kingdom. So what Jesus was supposed to do was raise up an army, conquer Rome, Uh, This is this is total side note I talked about this last time I was here But I don't expect you to remember it is that when James and John are arguing about who would sit at Jesus's right hand Right what they're asking for is power and prestige in the kingdom when Jesus raises the army up This is an incredibly arrogant thing for them to ask Because Jesus was not supposed to be a humble shepherd. He was supposed to be a mighty warrior as a messianic figure and Jesus had just rejected two armies when he fed the 4,000 and when the fed the 5,000, they, both times they sought to make him their leader. One of the times it says they wanted to make him king. So he just rejected an army that he could have started the whole, the whole rebellion process against the Roman, uh, the Roman occupying force there. But he didn't. So for Peter to come to grips with, he's wrestling with this because he's going, okay, you're, you are the Messiah, but you don't look like what I expect you to look like. Okay, so this is actually, I mean, it can, it can seem like, like, you know, you read that 2,000 years later and you go, well, duh, of course, like Peter should be able to figure that out. But no, put yourself in the Jewish culture of the day, he wouldn't be able to figure that out. So for him to start to, re- he's wrestling with these ideas about who Jesus is, and then he says, you're the Christ, the anointed one, you're still him, which is a distinctly human vocation, a king would come, but you're also the son of the living God, so I'm starting to recognize something of the divine in you. So Peter is making really the first statement Scripture gives us, that that in terms of a person saying it anyway, in the historical narrative, that Jesus is both God and man. So Peter's wrestling with this, and Jesus gives them an affirmation, right? He's wrestling with these thoughts. Then then we move on down, uh, down to verse 24. Then Jesus tells his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, no, that's not where I wanted to be. (laughs) He does say that, though. (laughs) Moving up, verse 21, not 24. It's a small print Bible, so, you know. Uh, 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. (laughs) Okay, so Peter's just said... You are the Messiah, and there's also something of the divine in you, and he's wrestling out in his mind what that means, and Jesus is going like, no one told you that, but God's showing you something, right? And then he, and then Peter has the audacity to rebuke him. Like, you don't rebuke. (laughs) Like, think about this, like, rebuking the man you just said has a divine image in him. This takes some arrogance, on some level, Peter, he's still wrestling with the idea. Like if he, like like Chris, like Kristen had said, if we really knew who he was, we would fall down, right? Peter, still wrestling with who he is, goes, oh, don't say, don't talk like that. You can't say that. And then he says, like, I love, I love, like, do we have this kind of, Contemporary, kind, fluffy, nice Jesus, right? You guys know that, that thing where people say, well, Jesus was just loving. Like, we should just accept everything because Jesus just loved. But then, like, it's like, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> Jesus had a standard? <laughs> he had. Anyway. <laughs> He turns to Peter and says get behind me Satan's you're a you're a hindrance to me nice kind fluffy Jesus for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man see what Jesus is saying is you you're still thinking about my human vocation you're forgetting you're setting your thing your mind on the things of man you're forgetting that part about me being the son of a living God so Peter's still wrestling right he's got some thoughts blue-collar Peter who's a fisherman right Good Jewish Peter, who up until about the age of 15 is studying the Torah and the scrolls and memorizing lines of scripture, right? So he's got the religious stuff. He's got the cultural stuff. He's got the work stuff. He's successful. He's part of the family business. So he's been formed by his culture. He's been formed by his family. He's been formed by his religion. He's been formed by his church, right? So he's trying to work this out and get himself out of that box, but he can't quite get there yet. And then this happens, Matthew 17. We're almost done and after six days jesus took with him peter and james and john his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves here's the one thing is you don't can't get up that high mountain by yourself you need jesus to lead you up the mountain you can get up there when you're in him but you can't get up there by yourself so this is all happening within about a week and a half okay peter's admonished God's revealed something to you. He rebukes Jesus. Six days later, he's leading him up the mountain. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here if you wish. I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him." When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, "Rise and have no fear." Mark nine adds this about that when Peter says to Jesus, "Lord, it's good that we're here," it says that uh, let, "Let us build three tents for you." It says that he said this because he was afraid. Maybe I can get the worship team to um, make their way back up. Peter, who's wrestling with this idea about who Jesus is, who's just rebuked Jesus six days before for saying something he disagreed, for primarily a theological argument. You can't say this. Here's the point, okay? When Peter says, let's build tents, one, Moses and Elijah show up before we get to the tents. Moses and Elijah show up, right? That represents the law and the prophets. That's Moses and Elijah. The law and the prophets. Moses is the law, Elijah is the prophets. Right? These are the two most enigmatic figures for Jewish history. They sum up everything that had come before. They were wildly important to Jewish culture and Jewish, Jewish religious practice, Moses and Elijah, okay? And you also know that they have a particular... Practice in the Jewish calendar called the Feast of Tabernacles, where they all gather around Jerusalem, build a tent, and occupy that place together. I mean, throughout Jewish history, there is the let's build a tent and dwell here, and God will come with us, right? So, what Peter's pulling on here is Peter's going, Okay, I know what to do now, guys. I know what to do right now. Because I remember in, in our religious history, this is how we respond to these moments we build a tent for these guys. My religion has taught me how to respond to an important moment. Like he's also a tradesman, so my skills can be on display. I could build a tent. I can do what I'm good at. Moses and Elijah are super important, so let's keep them right here. Let's keep Jesus right with them. On some level, he's thinking Jesus is on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Let's keep them all here. My, his culture he tried to respond based on his culture. He tried to respond based on his religious experience He tried to respond based on uh, his his vocational upbringing. He tried to respond based on his family of origin and all of it failed him Because in the face of the beauty of Jesus Nothing can prepare you for your response Nothing The only thing is that you fall down Even he was afraid fear didn't even do it In fact, Jesus told him don't be afraid We've got so bungled up in our thoughts about how we're to respond when Jesus comes well I know what we do. I know what we do when this song comes on. I know how I'm supposed to act when I come into the church service I oh I can I could jump really high and people are gonna really like how I look You know, if you're a flagging church, I know how to use the flags. (laughs) That's how you do it. (laughs) Like in the face of the beauty of Jesus, nothing prepares you except to fall on your face. You notice how Peter stopped talking. Fall on your face in awe and reverence and let all the other stuff go. And here's the thing. That voice says, this is my son, listen to him. Okay, Moses and Elijah, the two most important things for Peter, as a Jew, totally disappear and he's told, don't listen to these things anymore, listen to him. Totally departed. There's a new thing coming. It's going to require you to let go of the old culture, tradition, religious practice. There's a new thing coming, and it's going to radically transform who you are. It's the face of Jesus shining brilliantly upon you, the perfect image of the Father, the love and the tenderness who says, "You don't." hey, look, look, he doesn't say, Peter, you stupid servant, you don't know how to respond. He says, stand up and be with me, and don't be afraid. Thanks for listening to the GT Moncton Podcast. For full services, head over to our YouTube channel. If you have any questions or want to get connected, go to gtmoncton.com, and follow us on social media at GT Moncton to stay up to date on what's happening here at GT. God bless.